You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, August 1st, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. It's often fun to do sometimes at grace gatherings around here when we do uh, Q&A is uh, we often get asked uh, the different pastors that are here how old we are. It's like a guessing game, really. Um, so I will give you this clue. I, I was born in the 70s, which means for some of you, I'm a baby, and for others of you, I really am as old as my silver beard uh, tends to depict me as. But as a, as a kid who was born then and who grew up in the subsequent decades, the, the blanket of the Cold War and the arms race is really the storyline that we grew up under. Um, that was the dominant theme. Everything was about it. Rocky fought the evil Drago. Maverick and Goose cleared the skies of the evil Soviet MiGs. All the songs on MTV were dealing with it. Um, and I remember vividly where I was, whose house I was in, what room I was sitting in, where I was sitting, when I watched the Berlin Wall come down. All of the joy and all the energy and all of the exuberance around that. It, it was the storyline that dominated the, the early decade plus of my entire, my entire childhood. Um, and I was reminded this week of images of that day that I remember seeing, but, you know, even as a kid, I really couldn't fully comprehend. They were pictures of people somewhere on the other side of the world walking around their neighborhood, down their streets, their sidewalks, in their town squares, pushing their televisions in shopping carts, pushing their televisions in baby strollers, some of them carrying their televisions as they were walking around. When I was reminded of those images this week, it was Poland in 1981. The communist government of Poland had decided to crack down on a resistance movement that had grown that was called Solidarity. And in their effort to crack down on this resistance movement, and with the one particular town, they sent a stream of tanks and soldiers, and hundreds were arrested, dozens were killed, and to their dismay, it didn't quiet the resistance. The group of Solidarity began to boycott the evening news in Poland. Evening news being a, an arm of the regime at the time. They thought, here's what we'll do. We'll just turn off the news. We won't listen to what they have to say. We, we're not having any of this. We don't want any of it. But really, what does that do, right? You just turned off the news. What did that really change? And so one evening, this resistance group decided to do something different. Instead of just turning off their TV during the news hour, they unplugged their televisions and they took them outside with them on a walk. And they just began to walk around their neighborhoods and around the town square with their televisions, giving a visible picture that we don't want to be a part of this anymore. We don't want this anymore. And here's the thing, it infuriated their government. You know why? They couldn't do anything to stop it. There's nothing illegal about taking a stroll around your neighborhood. It's not illegal to go for a nightly walk, even if you have your television with you. And so there in Poland in the early 80s, take your TV for a walk, began to spread through the country like wildfire. And the government couldn't stop it. I mean, who would have thought that something as simple as taking a walk would have such a profound impact on an entire people? Something as simple as just taking a walk, even if it was with your TV in a shopping cart, would be such a profound act of resistance. You know, praise God, we, we don't live in the climate of Cold War communism any longer. But on the other hand, we do live under the oppressing weight of a regime whose values and expectations are even more crushing to the soul and spirit. Now, for some of you, I want you to take a deep breath. I'm not going to be talking about anything associated with donkeys or elephants or the libertarians and honey badgers or anything like that, right? 
this regime, it's much older. It's much deeper than all of those things we like to ponder and argue today. And yet, a simple act of resistance may very well prove in our day to be more powerful than any of us could have imagined. But what's so bad that you and I need to even consider the idea or the need for resistance? Let's play a little numbers game to get started. It was too early for the first service. You guys, you know, you might be up to speed. If I say 2.3 billion square feet, what comes to mind for you? Still too early, right? Number games aren't our thing. 2.3 billion square feet. That is the amount of rentable storage unit space available in our country today, as of 2020. Want to break it down even further? 7.3 square feet for every person breathing in this country. 7.3 square feet. Doesn't really capture it for you. 2.3 billion square feet is the same as 82.5 square miles. Still too big, right? Richmond, 62.5 square miles. Charlottesville, 10.3 square miles. Williamsburg, 9.1 square miles. Add them all together, 81.9 square miles of land in those three cities combined. Still just a smidge under the square mileage of available external storage space that we are building at a rapid pace in this country. That's a lot of stuff. All stuff we already can't keep in our houses that are full of stuff. As we saw last week, study after study is showing that we as a culture are not only working more than any other industrialized country in the face of the earth, we tend to be doing it so that we can continue to accumulate more and more. Work, buy, rinse, repeat. In fact, during the Nixon administration, that's even older for some of you, during the Nixon administration, there was a subcommittee that was put together that explored the advancement of technology that was already readily apparent in that day. That subcommittee delivered to the reigning government the idea that by the year 1988, some of you were even born by 88, they were saying by 1988, the average American would work, on average, 20 hours a week. The biggest problem we were going to face, you know what they say, this is a a government subcommittee. The biggest problem we were going to face, you know what it was? What we were going to do with all the time. Economists and sociologists have answered the question. They said, as a people, we have chosen money over time. And we spend the time that we have to make more money. And that in doing so, we have chosen more over less. Hurry over quiet. We work more than any other industrialized nation. We have more than we could have ever imagined having. Except happiness. Peace. Rest. In America, these numbers are always a few years behind, so we'll know 2020's numbers in a couple more years. But on average, we spend $250 billion a year on antidepressants. I'm not against it. There's a time and a place for all these things. I'm not saying that's bad in and of itself, but you can't ignore the correlation. Depression-related illnesses needing antidepressant medication are being prescribed at 400 times the rate they were just 25 years ago. And yet, we keep doing the same thing. 
we keep living the same way. We keep working more and doing more convinced that it's how we're going to get ahead. And once we can get ahead and we can get the kids ahead, then we can be happy, then we might be able to stop, then we might be able to rest. Judith Shulevitz wrote in the New York Times that in a society like ours that measures status and achievement in grades and awards and getting into the right schools, the scramble for advantage is bound to propel us into overparenting. Overparenting, she said, is closely linked to our overwork. It's harder to opt out of than you think. But for now, we just use our children to jockey for our own individual status. You don't think that's true? I will say that more often than not, the stickers we like to put on the back of our cars about where our kids go to school have a lot less to do with school spirit than we like to think. Just saying. But I was struck by her phrase, it's hard to opt out. It feels hard to break away. It's hard to opt out. We feel powerless to the way things are. And when that's the case, what do we do? We just acclimate. We just move and live to the rhythm of this present world, a rhythm we weren't created to move to. And in return, what do we actually get? We get historic levels of stress, anxiety, restlessness, hurried hearts, all just canaries in the coal mine, letting us know that our life is out of rhythm. If only there was a different way, right? If only there was a simple and ordinary act of resistance, a simple way to push back and say enough is enough. Well, good news, my friends. God has given us the very thing we need. As we saw last week, not only is Sabbath, the rhythm of grace that God wove into the DNA of creation, a rhythm of grace that he created us to live into for our restoration, for our flourishing, for our well-being, a, a rhythm that recalibrates our hearts and restores our souls. Sabbath is also an act of resistance. It's an act of revolution. It's a way to resist the kingdom of this world. It's a way to push back and say, this far and no further. You've got your Bibles, open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let's begin to take a look at where we get this idea. Deuteronomy chapter 5, you, you heard it read just a few minutes ago. It's the second giving of the law, of the Ten Commandments, but there's some unique differences about it. Last week, we looked at the first giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus, where God gave his law to his people. He had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out of that land. He had met with them at the base of the mountain, and he gives them his word for their flourishing, for their joy, and for his glory. But we know the story. That generation had a hard time in the wilderness between the mountain and the promised land, and they weren't going to be able to enter that land. And so now, as God's people are standing on the edge of the promised land, Moses is recounting the story of God's faithfulness to the next generation. Deuteronomy is being given to the generation that didn't grow up in Egypt, that didn't experience that deliverance. They were born in the wilderness. These are the children and the grandchildren of the previous generations. And so Deuteronomy is really a retelling of the entire story up to this point for this particular generation as they're on the edge of going into the land of promise. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we get the second giving of those 10 commands. And I want you to hear again, particularly, this one related to Sabbath. It starts in verse 12. And from the very first word, we, we see some unique things about it. Verse 12 says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In Exodus, it said, remember it. And here, God is reminding his people through Moses very directly to observe it. 
to keep it, to guard it, to watch over it. Watch over and keep the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And then verse 15, listen to this. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. If you were with us last week, pop quiz. What was the explicit motive that God gave his people for remembering the Sabbath day in Exodus chapter 20? Remember, it's the only command that has the motive already in it. What was the motive? It was God's pattern in creation. For six days God worked, and then on the seventh he rested. He Sabbathed. He ceased. He delighted. He enjoyed. You created in his image and your likeness just as God wove this rhythm into creation. He has woven this rhythm into the DNA of your very being. That was the motive in the first. But what's the motive here? What's the motive given to the next generation? It's not God's rhythm in creation. It's God's grace and redemption. Remember where you were. Remember whose you are that you don't ever find yourself wanting to go back. At some point this week, it would be good if you would open up your Bibles and to begin to read the story of where God's people were when God redeemed them in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 1, in particular, in verses 11 through 14, I'll just give you the highlight. You can be reminded that Pharaoh had become very uncomfortable with the Israelites in the land. They grew way too numerous for his comfort. So... In his fear of the Israelites, he enslaved them. He put them to hard labor. And do you know what he had them do? It's explicitly there in Exodus 1 verse 14. Their labor was in order to build storage cities for Pharaoh. That was their job. All day long, every day of the week, with no stopping, with no resting, they were under the daily quota of producing everything necessary to build entire cities for him to keep his stuff. Every single day. And then if it wasn't enough, when his discomfort grew even higher, chapter five, if you know the story, you remember what happened. He made it harder on them. He took from them the straw necessary to make the bricks, but he didn't change the quota. You've got to go out and get everything you need and then produce everything you have to produce to build for me the thing that I want. And you can't fall short. Every day, all day, seven days a week, no resting from the burden of this desire for the king to accomplish all that was in his heart, and to accumulate for himself everything he wanted. For him to have storage cities, for more stuff. Because bigger cities and more stuff meant that he was more successful than all of his predecessors. Pharaoh valued, Egypt valued accomplishment and accumulation. And the Israelites were only valued to the degree that they could produce what Pharaoh wanted. They were simple machines. And from this slavery, God redeemed his people for himself. And so God, through Moses, looks at this next generation and says, observe this day, watch over this day, keep this day, guard this day. Remember, your story is part of their story. 
And by God's grace, you're a slave to Pharaoh no longer. You live to an entirely new king in an entirely new kingdom with an entirely different identity and source of value. You're not defined by what you do. You're not defined by how much you can produce and accumulate. You're not defined by whatever value the world around you tells you you add. You're defined by who you're loved by. You see, the Sabbath was a weekly declaration of whose the Israelites were. And as they kept it, watch this, it kept them. Historically, sociologists will tell us that there's not been another socio-ethnic group in history that has remained as intact as the Jewish people have without land and political representation, especially prior to the establishment of the nation-state of Israel. Every other socio-ethnic community has at some point been entirely assimilated into the culture in which they found themselves, but not the Jewish people. And sociologists will tell you that one of the chief reasons that they have not been assimilated the way others have is their practice of the Sabbath. And for the Jewish people, there are very clear regulations around this practice of the Sabbath. Geography-defining restrictions. Activity-defining regulations. But in every time and in every place and in any regime or empire or situation, there has been a people that has been defined by the story that together submits to the story of understanding who the, whose they are and who they're loved by. And it's kept them for centuries. You see, historically, people would get their sense of identity and understanding by being a part of a family or part of a community, a son or a daughter of so-and-so or a citizen of such-and-such place. But today, we celebrate and we absolutely revel in the fact that we are a part of one of, if not the most individualistic culture in history. And when that becomes reality, something else has to define value for you. Something else has to become the defining aspect of meaning and identity. Tim Keller was writing about this years ago. Keller said, we have freed people from assigned social roles so we can be who we want to be. But what this means now is that your value and your identity is now something you must earn. You have to achieve and you have to do it individually. You have to get out there and do it. What that means is that our relationship with work is completely changed. At one time, work was what we did to get our families ahead, but even now, our family is a way for us to have individual achievement. Your work is how you get your value and your worth by how much money you make and the social class your work propels you into as a result. And it's left us all tired. He said, there's never been a more workaholic culture to walk the earth. A people who have submitted to being defined by accomplishment and accumulation. So here's the thing, friends. Egypt never really goes away. Egypt and Pharaoh have never really gone away. They've simply become an archetype. I mean, let's be honest. The Pharaoh of Exodus 1 would absolutely love 21st century productive Americans who never stop working, never stop producing, never stop accumulating, who've amassed 83 square miles of storage cities for their extra stuff. And so Keller would go on to write, Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Do you realize what that means? A society that encourages overwork is as brutalizing and depersonalizing and dehumanizing as a society that encourages stealing, adultery, and killing. It's on the same list. 
Overwork is on the same list. Friends, we need recalibration. We need to resist. We need a revolution. Sabbath is an act of resistance born out of God's gracious redemption. It's a regular act of resistance against the principalities and powers that seek to keep us enslaved, that seek to dehumanize us, that seek to define us as nothing more than machines who are what we can do and what we can produce. It's a regular act of ordinary resistance against the false gods and values of the empire. Sabbath says enough is enough. This far and no further. It's an invitation for God's free people to live in that freedom. Sabbath is a declaration of revolution and resistance that says, I am not what I do. Period. But don't mishear me. Work matters. Work matters to God. He dignifies it in the same creation and in the same commandment. It's a symbiotic rhythm with work and rest. That's how he created it. It's dignified. It's good for us. All rest and no work is equally dehumanizing. But all work and no rest. Well, we know where that leads us. Work as dignified as it is in God's words. It's not meant to be our identity. It's not meant to be our defining value. It's not meant to become the God that we serve with our life. As one writer said, anyone who overworks is a slave. When you put your work down, you're saying, I am not a cog in a machine. I'm not a slave to the materialistic society in which I live. I'm not a slave to the identity system in the society in which I live. I'm not a slave to the identity that my society demands of me. Rather, I declare my freedom and my identity in God. When you Sabbath, when you truly rest, it's a revolutionary act. You are declaring your freedom. I am going to live as a free person. I do not want to go back and put myself under the relentless taskmasters of Egypt. Again, Egypt and Pharaoh don't go away. They're right here in the phone. They're right there in your email. They're right there on your television. They are whispering all the time into your heart and into your mind, more, 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 do, do, do. Who are you if you can't do this? Sabbath is a weekly crashing down of the Red Sea onto Pharaoh and his armies that would seek to try to enslave us and bring us back. Sabbath is a powerful means of breaking our addiction to this accomplishment. The voice that would say, if I'm not grinding and hustling and killing it, then I'm nobody. Psychologists and scientists are catching up to this reality and writing about it. One said the most subtle distortion in self-worth creeps in through the inability to feel good about yourself without accomplishment. Did you hear that? It's no longer I wasn't able to just get the list done that I needed to do. All of a sudden, that now says something very defining about who I am as a person. Sabbath provides a very tangible, practical, tactile way of not just remembering, but declaring that God loves you not because of what you do or what you can accomplish. 
It absolutely sets you free and declares that you are going to live in the freedom that God has purchased for you through his son. When you stop, cease, you resist that internal Egypt and Pharaoh. And you live free and delight in God and his grace. It's an act of resistance. What would it be like if you were to step back? To stop? To take time to look back on the previous six days and see clearly how God was not just continuing to provide for you, but was providing through you. Maybe you take a walk with your family or with your friends and you do nothing else but spend time recounting to each other all the things by which you have to be grateful for that God has done in you and through you and for you in the previous six weeks. Just enjoyed being his child whom he's continued to love and care for and provide for. But you got to stop. Sabbath is a declaration that I am not what I do. But it's also a declaration that I am not what I have. I didn't know this until I was studying this. The number one leisure activity in America? Shopping. Period. That's That's not even a joke. I wish it was. I love Amazon. But the number one leisure activity in America is shopping. We have an absolute addiction to accumulation. If 83 square miles of storage space doesn't say it, I don't know what else does. But here's the thing. We're we're never satisfied. Enough is never really enough. The more we want, the more we have to work in order to get the income to get it. And once we get it, the more we have to work to get the income to keep it. And the more we get it and the more we keep it, the more we begin to want. And what do we get in return? Anxiousness, stress, disconnection. Yet we keep buying more and larger homes, extra storage units, extra cars, adding extra financial burdens to our life that we have to work harder for in order to pay for to be able to keep, and the cycle just keeps going on. More work, less rest, for what? For stuff. For whose approval? Are you really telling me that you are defined by what you do and what you have. That I can sum you up by the bottom line on your bank account. That what's sitting in your driveway or in your garage is at that zip code and that address tells me exactly who you are. Is that really what we're saying? Sabbath is an act of resistance to the cultural value that says you are what you have. You are what you're able to accumulate for yourself. See, Sabbath is a fundamental act of faith and trust in God to provide by stopping. One pastor said this can be very difficult, both for those who struggle with the prospect of not having enough and equally for those who struggle with the peril of not recognizing What is enough? It's not unique to us. Israel struggled with the same thing in the wilderness. God would provide for their needs in the most miraculous of ways. You know the story of the manna from heaven? Every single day they would wake up and there would be this bread from heaven waiting for them. And God said, all you need to do is go out and take what you need for the day. Don't take any more than you need, but take what you need for the day. If you took more, what would happen? You know the story? It would rot, it would spoil, right? So take what you need for the day, I'll provide. The day before the Sabbath, take double, right? Because you're not to go out and gather on the Sabbath, but I'll provide for you. So take double, and that double won't rot. It's crazy, right? 
So week after week, you take what you need. God continues to provide. You take double for the Sabbath. It doesn't rot. It's amazing. But what do the Israelites keep doing? They keep going out and taking more than they needed. Why? Because fundamentally, they trusted their ability and capacity to get for themselves what they thought they needed than for God to continue to faithfully provide for them everything they needed. They trusted themselves way more. So one writer said the deeper problem leading to the inability for us to receive Sabbath rest is this same fundamental lack of trust in God despite his demonstrated love and faithfulness. It's the ongoing refusal to trust God that leads people to forfeit the rest they so desperately need. When people today have time to Sabbath and yet refuse to obey God's command, they're doing exactly what the Israelites did in the wilderness. They don't believe that God will provide for their needs. Rather, they trust in their own self-sufficiency, inadvertently stealing God's job away from him in a futile and foolish attempt to be God. People forfeit the grace that God promises to provide. That last sentence has haunted me for seven days. Forfeiting the grace that God has promised to provide. I have forfeited that grace for so long. Friends, I don't want to leave that grace on the table any longer. Sabbath is a declaration to ourselves at the bottom line that there are things more important. There are other things in life besides producing and consuming. Sabbath is a reminder that ultimately our life does not depend on our hard work but on God's ongoing provision and grace. And we have to learn it the same way Israel did. Sabbath isn't about what we don't have. It's not about what we want. But it's about a restful, faithful delight in what God has provided. It's a weekly recalibration of our heart away from slavery to the grind and accumulation to recalibration of our heart away from the greed and the discontent and a recalibration towards the freedom of gratitude and contentment and restfulness of soul that God provides in his kingdom. Because Sabbath is about his kingdom, not ours. Like I told you the story last week of a pastor that I have been learning from in regards to this, who got to the place with his own family after a few years of trying to practice this principle where they finally said in their family on the day that they practiced the Sabbath, how about we not talk about anything we want? He said, if one of us, including myself, begins to talk about something we want, which is just natural, we are consumers, your mind wanders to that pair of shoes you want while you're out in nature taking a walk, thinking about all the ways that God has loved you and provided for you, and you're thinking about the shoes that you want, and they've decided that in this case, they will encourage one another. How about we not talk about that today? There are more days to talk about that. Today is for delighting in what we do have. And I want you to hear me in this. Accomplishment and accumulation aren't in themselves evil. But there is a limit. There ought to be a limit to them for our own soul. At some point, you... You have to draw a line and say enough is enough. I don't really have to have an extra car. Do I really need, fill in the blank, it's already popping into your head, right? That's the, the kicker right there. Do I really need? Our hearts are so adept at taking the things that we may want, nothing wrong with that, and redefining them into things we think are essential needs. And the story of the culture and the world in which we live in tells us that 
there are certain things that we have and certain things that we do that make us who we are. And we live into that song. And we live into that rhythm. And Sabbath is a weekly declaration. I am not what I do. I am not what I have. Friends, it's okay to not get everything you want. It's a weekly declaration that says that Pharaoh is dead. I have been set free. It's a weekly act of resistance and revolution. Now, we don't have time to get into it this morning. We we could take some time maybe in the fall, but... Man, the Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, this particular aspect of the Sabbath, it really gets into what the practice and the habit and the rhythm of the Sabbath will look like and how it impacts the people. We don't want to deal with that. That'll mess with your heart and mess with your life. How your habits of accomplishment and accumulation and how those addictions impact the lives of the people live. Sabbath, remember, he says, is a day for you, your family, your son, your daughter, the sojourners inside your gates. Everybody, everybody gets to rest as you do. The Sabbath will ultimately mess with us on that, but we'll get to that another time. This principle of the Sabbath, it's more than just a simple day. It is a prophetic instrument of God's grace that cultivates in us a a, a restfulness that we live out of throughout the entire week. We carry it with us and live from it the other six days. In that sense, it truly can become the best day of the week, the day that anchors us to our identity as God's children, as his free people those who can stop and who can rest because of whose we are. It fundamentally begins to cultivate a different thing in our soul. And our lives become a reflection, an increasing reflection of a different kind of satisfaction and a different kind of joy and a different kind of peace and a different kind of rest. Friends, if you you want to be trapped in the cycle of accomplishment and accumulation, if you're content with the ever-elusive identity of what you do and what you have, just ignore everything I've said to this point. But if you're up for a little revolution, if you're up for a little resistance, you want to live into and from the fullness of the rhythm of God's grace and freedom. To live in an exodus from this present day's slavery and into the freedom that God has for you being led forward by Jesus himself. Friends, God would invite you to receive the rest of Sabbath. He would invite you to receive and enjoy this ordinary act of resistance. He'd invite you to begin to live into his rhythm. And I'll say it again. We said it last week. I'll say it this week. God won't love you any more if you do it, any less if you don't. You and I exist to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And Sabbath is simply a rhythm of grace and resistance to this present world that he has given us, whereby our souls are recalibrated, our souls are restored. We're given rest, whereby we can enjoy him increasingly more and glorifying him as we go about our day and our life. The Sabbath, Piper said, is a gift of love from God to meet our need, not an oppressive burden to make us miserable or proud. So what would it look like if next Saturday night you stopped, you ceased, put your phone in airplane mode, closed your laptop, you put it away, maybe you lit a candle 
and gathered around a table with your family, with your friends, with your community, with your roommates, and together you enjoyed your most favorite meal. And in the enjoyment of that meal, you were intentionally mindful of the one who created you with the very taste buds on your mouth to enjoy it. The very senses in your nostrils to be able to take it in. The very plants and the very animals that combine to make this meal that you're enjoying. And every aspect of it together, you were able to roll up into a delight in the one who's continued to provide. You spent some time maybe around the table talking about through the week the ways in which you saw God working and providing for you and in you and through you. And then maybe after that, you went and went to bed. What a great way to kind of roll into Sabbath. But you realize when you go to sleep at night, you're actually preaching, you're actually declaring that you've got confidence that God is who he says he is, that by the word of his power, he's going to uphold all things. You can't do it. But you lay down and rest because you know he can. And then you wake up, not to jumpstart the day, but you wake up to enter into the day that he's already made. And you get to gather together with God's people. Where you take in the bounty of his grace as together you encourage one another. You sing, you pray, you hear from his word, you pass his peace and grace and And you're sent out, and maybe you go across the street and head down and take a long walk on the buttermilk trails to do nothing but immerse yourself in his creative glory. Just take it in. Be reminded of who he is and who you are. And whatever it is that's restful and filling to your heart and your soul, you go home, take a nap. You wrestle with your kids. You laugh. You just enjoy each other. And as the day begins to come to a close, you sit down, you eat, you pray, You're reminded of the ways that God continued to provide. And you look forward to going into the rest of the days that he has made from this place of gratitude and from this place of rest. Friends, what if we all decided to simply resist? To resist Pharaoh and the values of this world together? What if we all decided that a simple, ordinary act of resistance like this might just change everything for the well-being of our souls. What might God do through such an ordinary act where you and I tangibly declare that I am not what I do or what I have? Where we demonstrate our confidence and joy in whose we are by stopping, ceasing, delighting, and worshiping where we glorify him by enjoying him more and we receive his rest and restoration for our soul and we resist the lies of the present world and the artificial urgency of the day. Friends, Sabbath is a tangible way of remembering and expressing the truth that God is not only our creator, he is our deliverer. We are dependent on him for everything our work, and even our best efforts at living rightly, it can't ever do it. It can't ever accomplish for us all that our soul needs. We are solely dependent on the grace of God. It's a tangible reminder of who he is and whose we are. Friends, God's also given us another tangible way of remembering that he is our deliverer. Every week as we get to gather together on the Lord's day like this, we remember and declare our confidence and faith in him as we receive the elements of communion together. In just a moment, you're going to be invited to come and take a piece of bread. And in taking that bread, you are actually tangibly declaring with your actions your confidence and faith that Jesus took upon himself the judgment that you deserved for your sin, that he was crucified in your place. As you dip it in that cup, you are remembering and declaring tangibly your confidence that through the shedding of his blood, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, you have been redeemed, set free from the slavery of sin, a deeper slavery of soul that God has set you free from in Jesus, a freedom that you get to live in and enjoy.
For those of you who would say that by God's grace, through faith in Christ as King and Deliverer, you've been set free. In just a moment, you're going to be invited to come forward to tangibly declare your confidence and faith in Christ as you receive communion. And if you're here this morning and, and you would say that that's not you, I want you to know that we're all glad that you are here. And more than getting up and coming forward and taking bread and dipping it in the juice, we, we don't want you to make a, a false declaration of faith and confidence. More than anything, we want you to see Jesus that you might be able to receive him. And we want to help you do that. We want to help you better understand who he is and the freedom that he provides. Grab one of us as the service is over outside. There's a connection card that you can see online in your bulletin, a little QR code. You can click it. Let us know that you were here and that you want to talk more about this. We want to help you better understand who Jesus is and this freedom that he has offered to us. But for now, we're all going to pray. I will pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of responding to God's word and declaring the freedom and the confidence that he has purchased for us through his son. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll get on with it. Father, we thank you that you've given us not simply just your word, but as you created us as physical beings, you've given us tangible ways to experience your grace, to enjoy your grace, and to express our confidence in who you are for us, who you continue to be for us, who you will always be for us. I want to ask this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the miracle in our hearts that only you could do, and you could give us the courage to resist, the delight in your kingdom necessary to say this far and no further to the world, to enjoy being defined by you and loved by you, and to enter into the very tangible rest of soul that you provided. What we ask for Jesus' glory and our joy that you would do this thing in us. We ask it in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.